transmission begins. Space lane traffic is advised to stay away from Sol 3, also known as Earth. Pilots are warned Sol 3 is entering terminal extinction. Planet Earth is closed. Doctor Who, The Story of Martha, by Dan Abnett, read by Freema Ajman. It felt as if the whole world was made out of night. Their small boat was running the tide inshore towards an invisible coast... Above them, ink-black air hung starless and heavy. Below, the sea was as dark as the sky, breaking around their bows like black glass. The little outboard motor chugged, barely leaving a wake. The south coast grid can pick up a sonar echo at 30 miles, one of the men had told her when they embarked at Dunkirk. We'll be taking it slow. The two men in a shiny black oil slickers were underground, of course. They were the last cell to take up the tortuous relay that had conducted her from the Cursus Hill meet near the Orléans forage camps. They had circled the Paris crater and travelled north through the burned fields of Picardy and Artois to Flanders and the fortified sea walls and razor wire of the channelled coast. Like the smugglers of old, they knew the ways in and out and could navigate the darkness by smell and touch. Sometimes they even made it back alive. The enclosing night was cool and smelled of brine and channel breezes. They'd waited at Dunkirk for two days, hoping for fog, but it was unseasonably clear, as if something insidious was screwing with the weather patterns. In the end, she'd been the one who decided to go. Time was running out. The year was almost up. The stalwart men in their shiny black oil slickers had nodded. They would do their best. It was her, after all, and so much depended on her. As the year had gone by, she had acquired a degree of fame that had begun to bother her. They treated her with a respect that bordered on reverence, as if she was some kind of legend or saint. She knew they would willingly die for her, and hoped it wouldn't come to that. She sat on one of the wooden bracket seats, rocking with the motion of the little boat. Her leather jacket was buttoned up tight, and her nylon weave rucksack hung heavily against her back. She tried to clear her head and prepare herself. She breathed deeply, smelled the salt in her nostrils, and stared straight ahead. The men in the shiny black oil slickers didn't speak. The significance of embarking at Dunkirk had not escaped her. Her kid brother, Leo, had read Commando comics as a child. She knew all about Dunkirk, and now she was in a small boat, heading home, despite terrible misfortune, ready to make a stand against an apparently invincible enemy that believed it had already won. There was so much to do, such vast odds to face. The doctor had trusted her, but she wondered if she was worth the trust. In her mind, she saw his kind brown eyes, 
unchanged despite the age that had withered and creased his face. There had been perfect belief in them, a belief in her. A year had passed since then. It had been hard, and parts of it made her memory ache. She had endured every second of those twelve months. She had persevered. She had walked the earth and witnessed things she would never forget. The islands of Japan on fire. New York in ruins. The poisoned Caspian. The frozen Nile. Shipyard number one that had once been Russia. She had been through it all. And yet she had no way of knowing if her struggle had been anything like enough. The year hung on her like a dead weight and she dearly wished she could cast it off, erase it, dismiss it, wipe it out and start again. If only it could be a year that never was. That wish could never be granted. The past year was real, and it was unchangeable. Most of her choices had been made for her, but now it was up to her to finish it. It was up to her to save the world. But how do you save a world that's already lost? Two minutes, whispered one of the men. She stiffened. The engine chugged. I don't see anything, the other man hissed. There's nothing there. Wait, she said. They'll come. They have to come. The boat rocked under the blanket of darkness. The engine gurgled, idling. If they don't show, said the first man, we'll have to turn back. You understand that? We can't stay out here not even for you. She nodded. It won't come to that, Mathieu, she replied. You trusted me once. Trust me again. He nodded, but even in the dark, she could tell his expression was less than convinced. She didn't even believe herself. A small, blue-white halogen light appeared in the darkness ahead of them, tiny but stark. It flashed once, twice, a little cold star shining on an unseen beach. There, she said. The light began to swing gently from side to side. Mathieu's comrade rose in the bows and flashed his lamp back, two solid clicks. They came in through the breakers, the outboard throbbing. She felt the boat's belly scrape and rumble across the shingle. Mathieu and his comrade jumped into the water in their shiny black oil slickers, steadying the sides of the boat against the ebb. She got up and jumped out, cold water sucking at her legs. She looked back at the men wrangling the small boat and wished she couldn't see their faces. Make it right, Mathieu said out of the darkness. I will. God bless you, said the other man. I hope we can settle this before it becomes a matter for God. She said, thank you, both, I... They didn't reply. They were already pulling the boat off the shore, eager to turn for France. She ran up the beach towards the light, her wet boots crunching over damp sand and pebbles. People had played here once. They had built sand castles, licked 99s, knotted handkerchiefs around their heads, and set up deck chairs and gaudy windbreaks. She tried not to think about that. A young man was waiting for her on the foreshore, holding a halogen lamp in his hand. He was good-looking, tall, dark-haired and bearded, and he was dressed in fatigues. He watched her approach with a solemn, unsmiling face. She came up to him, slightly out of breath. <sighs> What's your name, then? 
she asked. Tom, he said. Milligan, no need to ask who you are. Famous Martha Jones. How long since you were last in Britain? Three hundred and sixty-five days, Martha replied. It's been a long year. One year earlier. Travelling by vortex manipulator hurt a lot. Martha hit the grass, rolling, gasping. Her sinuses ached, there was blood in her throat, and her organs felt like they'd been used as a punch bag. Captain Jack Harkness's teleport was right up there in the top five worst ways to travel. The instant before, she had been standing on the polished deck of HMS Valiant, the master's airborne carrier base. She lay back on the damp grass for a moment, recovering her wits, remembering the scene. They had lost everything. The master had outplayed them. The radio channels were frantic with transmissions of despair and astonishment. Jack had died at least once. Martha's family were prisoners. And the doctor... The doctor... Martha swallowed, determined not to cry. It served no purpose... It was weak, and the doctor was trusting her not to be weak. The doctor. The master had aged the doctor using a process built into his laser screwdriver. The doctor had become old, very old, a helpless, wizened shell. To see the youthful, vital being she adored reduced to geriatric frailty had been the worst thing of all. His eyes. His kind eyes had cruelly remained young. They had stared at her fiercely, lost and hopeless, dismayed to find themselves imprisoned in a failing body that could no longer bound between stars and joke in the face of the impossible. As the master clapped and capered, the ancient thing that had once been the doctor had leaned towards her and whispered a few words in her ear. Words that Martha would never forget. We can't stop him, Jack had gasped, coming back from the dead. Get out of here. With one last hopeless glance at her family, Martha had triggered the vortex manipulator Jack had given her. She never ran from a fight, but she knew when a fight was lost... It felt like she was abandoning them, but she knew it was the only choice, not just for her mum and dad or Tish and Jack or even the doctor, but for the entire human race. If there was even a chance she could do what the doctor had asked her to do, then she had to try. Bang! One press of the manipulator and Martha was earthside, rolling on damp grass, groaning in pain. She rose unsteadily to her feet. London lay before her. Like a blizzard of angry meteors, the Toclophane, the Master's new allies, were sweeping towards the city. He had invited them here. Metal spheres the size of soccer balls, the Toclophane sang as they swept out of the clouds. Their voices were light, carefree, gleeful. Their wicked blades were out, their weapons flashing. Six billion cybernetic globes singing childish songs of murder and malice were descending on the earth to exact decimation as per the master's unequivocal instruction. Decimation. One in ten must die. 
Martha watched the globes rushing overhead, cackling and chuckling, zigging and zagging, zipping out searing beams of destructive energy. People were screaming and running in panic, burned to ashes as they dashed for cover. The park around her was littered with fires, and thousands of explosions pinpricked the London skyline. Martha stood for a moment, stunned by the enormity of the master's lethal tithe. Planet Earth was dying. The Toclophane were committing mass murder. She knew the same scene was being repeated all around the world. The human race was being culled, cowed, and conquered. In a matter of minutes, Martha's species was being transformed into a cowering slave race. Breathing hard, she glared up at the shoals of Toclophane sweeping overhead. "I'm coming back," she said. Alicia ran. She was nine years old. A flying metal ball had reduced her aunt Charlie to ashes, and when Charlie's husband Grant had screamed at the ball and tried to hit it with a rounder's bat, it had incinerated him too. Alicia had been staying with her aunt and uncle for the day while her mum went shopping uptown. Her dad was in Iraq and sent letters when he could. Alicia liked hanging out with Aunt Charlie. She had a wicked sense of humour and allowed Alicia to play with the Wii, even if she had homework to do. Alicia didn't properly understand what had happened. The sight of a flying metal ball making her aunt vanish was too improbable. She kept expecting Aunt Charlie to appear from somewhere, laughing, "Gone, me? Not me, baby Alicia. It's like a magic trick." Alicia knew that if her daddy didn't come back from Iraq, it would be because of a bullet or a bomb. No one had told her that people could vanish, just like that, if a humming ball hovered into the room. The metal ball had spun, tilting as if it was looking at her. Blades had flicked in and out of its casing. Alicia waited, braced for it to zap her, but it had just rotated and zoomed out of the kitchen window. Then Alicia had run. She had been running for two weeks. There was no traffic in the streets, and the skies, empty of planes from Stansted and Gatwick, were beautifully clear. Alicia raided corner shops for chocolate and out-of-date sandwiches, and slept in empty houses and flats where the front doors had been left open. Once in a while, metal balls would zip overhead, cackling. Army trucks loaded with men grumbled past from time to time, but Alicia avoided them, even though they reminded her of her dad. She tried every TV she found, but there was nothing on. The radio was dead too, tuned out to static. Hungry dogs missing their masters barked and growled in back gardens. On the fourteenth day, chomping on a tuna sandwich from a plastic carton, Alicia noticed how weeds had begun to flourish in lawns and flower beds. She wondered how long her mum would be. How long did it take to go shopping uptown? Catford was no go. The unified containment forces had strung razor wire across the South Circular, and sandbagged machine gun posts guarded the way in through Peckham. From a flat in Deptford, Martha observed the containment forces through binoculars she'd liberated from a sporting goods store in Fulham. Army types, mostly men, dressed in black combat drills, humping MP5s and waist-harnessed Glocks. The master hadn't mucked about when it came to recruiting. And Martha wondered how much he was paying them, and what with. 
One thing was sure. Martha didn't want to face his private army. They were hard-marrowed killers who'd shoot on sight. They were the executors of martial law. Her key let her slip between them. The doctor had made it for her, using a TARDIS key, and it hung around her neck on a loop of string. They'd been eating fish and chips, her, Jack and the doctor, hiding out in an abandoned warehouse. The key was a perception filter. It didn't render her invisible, just inconsequential. The field generated by the key allowed her to walk where she liked. People could see her. They just didn't notice her. The filter blended her into the background. Automatic gunfire chattered a few streets away. The containment force is at work nearby, so despite the key's protection, Martha packed her things into her rucksack and got ready to move. She had to find a new place to hide. Hello, what's this? asked Griffin. Rafferty slung his MP5 over his shoulder and turned to look. A high-end Land Rover had swung into the street, flanked by two UCF outriders on BMW bikes. The Land Rover had been painted matte black, and UCF decals had been fixed to the doors. A potential pain in the backside from the look of it, Rafferty replied. Bowen, finish up, Griffin called, nice and tidy. Yes, Chief, Bowen sang back. The squad was loading a group of dissidents into an open back scammel, ready to ship them off to the new labour camp in Bromley. They jumped every time one of the squad moved or adjusted a weapon. Some of them were crying, and one of them was nervously tapping his fingers against his thigh. Tap, 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 tap. Get into the truck, Bowen shouted. I won't tell you twice. Six limp bodies lay under blood-stained sheets on the pavement outside a newsagent's. Griffin believed in making an impression, in showing who was in charge in this new world. The Land Rover pulled up, and the outriders halted and put their feet down. As he walked towards the Land Rover with Rafferty in tow, Griffin could hear the bike's radios chatter and pip. A tall, good-looking woman with short blonde hair got out of the Land Rover. Like Griffin and his team, she was dressed in black combat drills. I am looking for UCFA Griffin, she announced. Well, that's me, ma'am, Griffin replied. I'm ADC Dexter, she said. Well, I know exactly who you are, ma'am, Griffin said. I thought the likes of you preferred to stay aboard the Valiant, getting your boots dusty for a change, ma'am. The likes of me, the ADC sniffed. Griffin shrugged. Well, I don't mean nothing by it, he said. How can I help? The ADC pulled out a packet of sealed orders and handed them to Griffin. He tore them open and read them. Hard target search, UCFA Griffin, the woman said. A class alpha dissident is suspected at large in the vicinity. Our master wants her brought in. Your squad's assigned to this district, so you get the honours. Lucky us, muttered Rafferty. Martha Jones, Griffin read. Well, who's she? A known associate of the Doctor, the woman said. She's been on the run since day zero, absconded from the Valiant by teleport. Was she armed? Dangerous? asked Griffin. Unlikely, said the ADC. Our master doesn't think she poses much of a threat, but he's particularly edgy when it comes to all things Doctor-related. Martha Jones is a loose end that needs to be tidied up. Begging your pardon, ma'am, 
said Rafferty. But what makes you think Jones is in this district? It's all in the report, replied the ADC. She uses a teleport system, like I said, and the Valiant sensor systems identified her set-down site as Handcross Park. Griffin sniffed. Well, that's twenty miles away, and the fix is two weeks old. She could be anywhere. She's here, replied the ADC. We've had several reports of her operating with distant groups. Do a house to house if you have to. The ADC turned as if to leave. She paused. She'll be disguised, she added. Disguised, asked Griffin. Like fake moustache and glasses. She's using a perception filter, said the ADC. It's hard to explain. She'll be tricky to spot. Your mind will try to not notice her. Be alert. The moment you get a funny feeling, sharpen up. It'll be her. In the old days, Griffin would have laughed in her face. A perception filter. That sounded a bit sci-fi for his tastes. But things had changed in the last fortnight, and Griffin was open to a whole new world of wonder. Well, this sounds like a job for the Toclophane, ma'am," he said. "The Toclophane can't read her," said the ADC. "This requires human senses." Well, if you say so, ma'am. It won't be easy, but you will see her, because you want to see her. Our master was quite specific. Walk with me a moment, Griffin. Griffin followed her away from the Land Rover and the waiting bikes. Behind them, Bowen was yelling at the dissidents for moving too slowly. The ADC smelled good in the warm sunlight. Griffin liked the smell of a handsome woman, even one in authority. At almost two meters, he towered over her, and his XSAS honed bulk eclipsed her. May I be candid, UCFA Griffin? The ADC asked quietly. Candid as you like, ma'am. Jones may have fallen into your district, but we're keen to have you working on this. Our master believes that your training and skills can be of particular use. He's reviewed your file, Griffin. He's taken a personal interest. You're the man for the job. Well, I'm, I'm flattered, ma'am," said Griffin. "And you'll be rewarded, Griffin. You pull this off, and I'll propose you for the open chair on the sector council. No more getting your boots dusty. You'll be a serious link in the chain of command. Besides, you've come to the notice of our master, and that's how advancements are made." "Well, get right on it, ma'am." Griffin said, smiling. His smile was not at all friendly, given the horizontal scar that split his cheek and lip, trophy of a Helmand Province tour. The ADC nodded. This order supersedes all others. Hand off district duties to a subordinate, former kill team. Well, you want her dead? Our master wants her. Period. Griffin, hard target. I trust you won't be distracted by her good looks. Well, she's certainly a pretty thing, ma'am," he admitted. "But you can trust me not to be swayed." Good to hear," she said. She handed Griffin a mobile phone. Memory one is a direct line to me on the Valiant. Stay in touch, and I'll do my best to give you all the backup you need. Griffin looked at the phone. Our master is serious about this woman," he said. He really is. She replied. Griffin left Bowen to handle the dissidents and drew out a core team to run with him: Bob Rafferty, 
his old oppo from Helmond, Lowell Barker, an ex-para with a no-quit attitude he admired, Sean Jenks, another ex-para who'd seen service in Rwanda and Fallujah, Gordon Toffee Bremner, a Royal Marine who'd done 20 months in Basra, and Yank James Handley, an ex-USMC sergeant attached to the United States Secret Service. Handley had eagerly jumped into the master's mercenary ranks when his principal, President Winters, had been assassinated by the Toclophane aboard the Valiant on day zero. Griffin reckoned that Handley wouldn't have made secret service without proper chops, and besides, Handley had killer stone-cold eyes that Griffin had warmed to the moment they'd met. A man with eyes like that had to be useful. They borrowed a UCF Humvee. Griffin held up the picture. Martha Jones, he said. Sweet, said Handley, with a whistle. She's proper easy on the eyes, Chief, said Rafferty. Contain yourselves, Griffin snapped. He moved the photo out of their immediate vision. Did you still see her? he asked. I saw her better when she was pointing at me, Chief, said Jenks. Get used to it. This will be how it is. Sexy Martha's using a perception filter. You won't see her. She'll blindside you. The men looked at him, waiting for the punchline. I'm serious, Griffin said. She'll be standing right beside you, and you won't know it. The men began to scoff. Shut up, Griffin said. I picked you because you've got sense. The smarts. It's why you're alive today. You can all feel it when something's not right. This Jones girl is going to be hard to find. If we manage to drag her in, dead or alive, we will make our master seriously happy. You want your own island in the med, Raff? Thank you, Chief, Rafferty laughed. You want to be king of Africa, Toffee? If the job's going begging, Chief. You want to be president of the United States, Yank? Handley smiled and said, Heck, I'd make a better fist of it than the last four clowns put together, Griff. Well, that is what a personal favour for our master could mean, said Griffin softly. He's master of the world, and he's asking us to do this. I'm not screwing around with you. This is the big one. The men growled their approval. Lol, Griffin called out. Lol Barker put the Humvee in drive, and they prowled forward. Where do we start, Chief? asked Rafferty. I like your earrings, said Alicia. What? asked Martha, coming to a halt. I like your earrings. My mum has some just like them. Martha stared down at the little girl. It was getting dark, and the vacant street and empty houses felt all the more vacant as night closed in. You can see me, asked Martha. Alicia looked at her as if Martha had said something strange. Of course I can. Why wouldn't I? Uh, well, Martha began, do you really think you should be eating that? Alicia looked down at the mouldy sandwich. Probably not. It's a bit yuck. What's your name? Martha asked. Alicia, Alicia replied. Martha bent down and faced her. You can really see me? She asked. I can't any more, Alicia said, frowning. Why can't I? You're right there. I saw your glittery earrings. Martha took off the key and put it in her pocket. Better? She asked. Oh, yeah. I can see you all properly. What's your name? 
I'm Martha. Hello, Martha. How did you do that? Alicia asked. Like, pop? Well, it's... Martha began. She wanted to use the words perception filter, but she knew that would end up being too complicated. I wish my mum could appear like that, said Alicia. I keep wondering if she's ever going to come back. Pop. Come on, Alicia, of course she will. I think she's ashes, said Alicia. Martha took a deep breath. She wouldn't cry, not in front of the little girl. Thank you, Alicia, she said. What for? For noticing my earrings. I think I should take them off. Martha began to wind the studs out of her ears, but looked up as she heard the sound of a big engine. A UCF Humvee had just turned into the street. Martha put the key back on and took Alicia's hand. Alicia, I need you to come with me. I need you to run. I can do that, said Alicia. Did you see that? asked Rafferty. Fifty yards on the right. I saw something move. So did I, Chief, Jenks said. It was a girl. I think she went in through those houses. She wasn't alone, said Rafferty. You see a second body? asked Griffin. No, said Rafferty. That's what I'm talking about. Griffin nodded. He checked the tactical log via the vehicle's dashboard PC. Overwatch appraisals reported a dissident group operating in the vicinity, but he could see the look on Rafferty's face. I saw the girl, said Rafferty. I only realised there was someone with her when they were gone. Go, ordered Griffin. Barker hit the brakes and the squad dismounted. Safeties clacked off and they moved like shadows through the dusk, skirting abandoned cars. Griffin prowled forwards. Half a sandwich lay on the pavement, spilling from its plastic carton. Griffin raised his hand in a series of quick gesture commands and the men spread out. Barker led the way down an alley between the houses, his MP5 raised to his shoulder. Griffin followed him. Could they really have got so lucky so soon? Alicia kept up pretty well as they crossed a concrete yard edged by private garages and then ran through a communal area between three blocks of flats. A swing set and a miniature roundabout were surrounded by long grass. Martha felt her heart racing. As the doctor's travelling companion, she had experienced her fair share of dangerous escapades and close calls, but this was different. This felt unpleasantly real. The doctor wasn't there to lift her spirits or explain the fantastical away, and men with guns were closing in behind them. Martha was already beginning to despair over her mission. Two weeks since day zero and she'd barely begun the doctor's work. She hadn't even left South London. She'd made ineffectual contact with a few groups of survivors, but they'd been too preoccupied with the day-to-day -day problems of finding food, water and places to sleep to pay her much attention. Martha was also pretty sure that one of the groups had given the UCF info about her, in the hope of getting an amnesty. Walk the earth, spread the word. It was ridiculous. It was simply impossible. She was one woman. Her skills base did not cover urban survival or covert ops. She was learning all the time, but she kept making elementary mistakes. Sooner or later, something stupid was going to get her killed. Her earrings, for instance. Bright, shiny earrings. 
The little girl hadn't seen Martha, but she'd seen her earrings. Martha was pretty fit, but not fit enough for covert living. She'd been sleeping badly, and her diet was lousy. She was tired all the time, and the little sleep she did get was populated by the toclophane, the master's smile, and the doctor's disappointed eyes. They ran into the entrance hall of one of the blocks of flats. Martha pulled Alicia against the wall and made a shushing gesture against her lips with her finger. Alicia nodded, her eyes wide. Martha snuck a look back. Outside, in the dying light, the communal court was empty. Somewhere, a famished dog was howling. A few random street lamps, activated by light sensors, had begun to shine sodium yellow. A man appeared. He was dressed in black and armed, a containment forces agent. He edged out into the open and came to a halt beside the swing set. He panned his automatic weapon around and then gestured. Two more men appeared, and then a fourth. They fanned out. The first man rested his foot against the recycled rubber seat of the swing, which swayed to and fro on squealing chains. Martha knew she could find somewhere, hide, and let the perception filter do the rest. But she had the little girl to worry about. Alicia didn't have a perception filter, and she certainly wasn't bulletproof. Martha couldn't just leave her. Alicia had already been left in the worst way for anything up to two weeks. Martha wondered how long the little girl had been waiting for her mum. The thought bringing hot tears to her eyes. She breathed hard. She absolutely refused to cry. She wondered if she wanted to cry for Alicia. For the doctor, for the world, or for herself, for being so useless, the doctor should never have trusted her, and she almost hated him for asking so much. The UCF agent by the swing turned, as if he sensed her deep intake of breath or smelled her tears. He gestured and pointed. The men closed in around him and jogged towards the block of flats. There were six of them. Up, Martha whispered. And as quietly as they could, they ran up a flight of concrete steps into the base level of the tower block. The grubby stairwell led away above them, but to the left was an arch of twilight, an access way onto an upper court. Martha gripped Alicia's hand and led her through the arch onto the court. Alicia's trainers made no noise, but Martha's heels clacked. Oh, stupid! She stopped, pulled them off, and ran with Alicia in her socks towards the neighbouring block. They weren't going to make it. The upper court, with its raised flower beds and skateboard ramps, was too wide to cross in one go with the men behind her. Martha dragged Alicia into cover behind some wheelie bins. They hid. Hiding, Martha thought, is what I've spent most of the last fortnight doing. Nearby, the howling dog had become frantic, perhaps picking up their scent. Martha and Alicia cowered behind the foul-smelling bins. The men appeared, fanning up onto the court. Weapons raised, exchanging gestures and nods, and spreading out. Martha knew they were going to find her and kill her. Worse still, they were going to kill a little girl who was only in this fix because she'd seen Martha's earrings. A grown woman and a little girl. A meaningless footnote to the awful catalogue of deaths recorded in the last fortnight. Martha took a deep breath and focused. She wasn't going to allow this tiny crime to happen. 
The doctor had trusted her. He had trusted her. Stay here, she whispered to Alicia. I'll be right back, but I need you to hide. Can you do that? Alicia nodded and then said, Don't go. Could you look after my shoes and my earrings? Martha whispered, handing them to the little girl. Alicia closed her fist tight around the glittery studs. Stay here, Martha whispered firmly. She got up. The UCF agents had spread out across the court and Martha could smell their sweat and the oil of their guns. Checking her key, she stepped out from behind the bins. Someone's here, Chief, said Bremner. I know, replied Griffin, circling his weapon raised. Stay alert. Padding forwards, Martha crossed between two of the wary men. They didn't seem to see her. She slipped behind the man referred to as Chief. He was the biggest of them, with a memorable scar across his face. If she could get past him and reach the other side of the court, Martha intended to make some noise, cause a distraction, anything to lead the men away from the little girl. She took another step. You smell that? asked Jenks. What? asked Rafferty. Perfume. A real sexy girl number, Jenks said. Griffin shook his head. I smell it, said Bremner. Griffin narrowed his eyes. She's right here. Martha froze. She was out in the open. They were going to see her. The man with the scar began to turn. There was a sound of breaking glass from the neighbouring block. Go! Griffin yelled, and the men ran. Left behind, Martha sucked in a huge breath and ran back to Alicia. The little girl was still clutching Martha's shoes. Come on, Martha said, gripping her hand. Griffin's team scrambled up the stairwell of the tower block. Second floor, Griffin yelled. They started to smash open doors, aiming weapons. There was movement behind the fourth door they kicked down. Jenks and Handley opened up, the automatic fire splintering the door frame and shredding furniture inside the flat. Cease! Cease fire! Griffin yelled. It's just a dog, Rafferty blurted. The famished dog trapped in the flat had overturned a DVD stand which had broken the balcony window. The gunfire had missed it, and it was cowering behind the shot-up sofa covered in flecks of upholstery padding and chips of glass and whimpering. Damn, I was sure we had her, Griffin murmured. He knelt beside the dog and stroked its head. Easy now, boy. Petting the animal, Griffin unholstered his glock. Martha and Alicia heard the pistol shot ring out over the court. They fled back the way they had come, across the street where the big Humvee was parked and down a breezeway behind another residential block. They kept going until five streets away they couldn't run any more. Panting, they darted down the steps of a basement flat with an open door. Once inside, Martha bolted the door and put the chain on. Then she made the effort to smile and wink for the little girl's benefit. We'll be safe here, she said. Alicia nodded, but she was clearly scared. Martha began to search for food or anything else they could use. I know you're frightened, she said, but it's going to be all right. Is it? asked Alicia. In two lonely, scary weeks, 
Alicia had seen no evidence that anything was going to be all right. Martha realised that the little girl was really shaken. She sat down beside her on the settee and took her hand. I tell you what, Alicia, Martha said gently, would you like to hear a story? Yes, please, said Alicia. Martha's story seemed to raise the little girl's spirits, and telling it did Martha the power of good. It reminded her of what really mattered. This nine-year-old girl had survived for two weeks on the simple hope that someone would make everything better. It made Martha ashamed for feeling sorry for herself. Martha took a shower in the flat's dank cubicle. The water was cold and intermittent, but she hardly cared. She washed the traces of perfume away and vowed not to wear it again, or jewellery either. When Alicia woke up, Martha would take her somewhere safer. She'd find a survivor collective or refugee group and make sure they took care of the little girl. Martha felt a renewed determination. She'd wasted too much time hiding and skulking around, questioning her abilities. She had an enormous job to do, and she just had to get on with it. No more hiding, no more living in the shadows. She had to move with a purpose and make her own luck. That's what he'd do, after all. Daybreak. Griffin stood beside the Humvee, sipping coffee from a tin mug. Rafferty and the others had groused about the fruitless night's search, but Griffin wasn't convinced it had been fruitless. He was sure they'd been very close. She was clever and disguised, but the elusive Martha Jones had almost been in their grasp. Blind luck and a famished dog breaking a window had allowed her to slip away, but he had got close once, and he could do it again. Griffin tipped the dregs of the coffee onto the ground and called to his men. He wasn't going to give up and let her get away. Griffin was like a cruise missile. Once you set him going, he didn't stop until he found his target, and the ADC had been smart to pick him for the job. Come on, he shouted. Let's go. Martha said goodbye to Alicia two days later at a survivor outpost in Battersea. She spent a few hours with the group, listening to their stories and telling some of her own. She made them listen and understand, and she made them promise to carry the word onto other groups. Why are you doing this? One of the survivors asked her. Because someone has to, Martha replied. Just tell them what Martha Jones told you. You go round telling people this stuff, telling people your name, the master will come looking for you, said one of the others. I know, said Martha. He already is. But look at it this way. If the master wants to stop me, what I'm saying must be pretty important. Martha found Alicia earnestly telling one of her stories to a group of refugee children. Not wanting to interrupt, Martha watched quietly and waited until Alicia had finished. The process was beginning. She gave Alicia a hug. These people will look after you, she said. Do you want your earrings back? Alicia asked. You keep them for me. I'm coming back. Alicia nodded. OK, but you'd better have something in return. Here. She held something out to Martha. It was a plastic badge that read, Hooray, I am nine. I'll treasure it, said Martha. She picked up her backpack. Alicia? Yes, Martha? Martha smiled. Thank you.
She turned and headed towards the gate. It was starting to rain. Martha! Alicia called after her. Martha, where are you going? Everywhere, said Martha. At night, the ruins of Lille glowed like a pale ghost. Deep fires in the rubble of the sundered town had been burning for seven weeks since the descent of the Toclophane on day zero. UCFA Brunel led his reaction force through the enclaves of the labour camps and onto a broken highway that ran into the industrial wasteland of Sercour. They gave the radiation pits a wide berth and kept clear of the razor wire barricades. To the north, beyond Sercour, the spectre of Lille underlit the night sky. The trucks and APCs in his small convoy rolled to a halt. Overwatch, the command and control data network that fed through the Archangel satellite grid and coordinated UCF operations, had been routing them into Sercor, where a suspected flash market was underway. The command was to stop and wait. Brunel, eager to get on, requested clarification. As he waited, he drummed his fingers impatiently on the dashboard. Tap-tap-tap. The network pinged. Hold position and await personnel rendezvous, the message window from Overwatch read. After five minutes, a small truck approached from the south and pulled up beside the convoy. The men who got out were armed, but not in uniform. They were a scrappy lot in dirty fatigues and worn-out army surplus kit. Brunel didn't like the look of them. He checked his sidearm and got out of his APC to meet them. What is this about? he asked. The leader of the newcomers was a big fellow with a scarred face. You had your instructions to wait? the man asked Brunel in French, but his accent sounded British. Well, yes, identify yourself. The man flashed an ID wallet. UCFA Griffin, Special Operations. Why aren't you in uniform? Brunel asked. Special Operations, Griffin repeated. This is a waste of time, said Brunel. He gestured towards Circor. There's a flash market in progress. They picked off a supply convoy yesterday and they're dispersing the goods. We should be in there, breaking it up and making arrests, not... Have you seen this woman? Griffin asked, holding up a photo. No. Should I have? Her name's Martha Jones, said Griffin. Bruno raised his eyebrows. I've heard stories. She's some kind of figure head, isn't she? He asked. Well, I've been tracking her across the UK, Griffin said. She slipped into France eight days ago on a container ship and went through two internment camps on the coast. I've positive sightings. She looped down through Combray, but I think she's turned back to cross the border into Belgium. What am I supposed to do about it? asked Bruno. A flash market is exactly the sort of place she'd go, Griffin answered. She's contacting survivor groups. I need that market to stay open. You close it down, you close down my lead. Brunel shrugged. Is this authorised? Yes, said Griffin. He held up a phone. But if you don't believe me, there's someone you can talk to. They'd chosen to hold the market in an old warehouse near the container yard in the south of Sercor. It had good access and was hard to contain or close off. Speed was the essence of a flash market. You put out the word and then moved in and set up fast, distributing goods from the backs of lorries. 
first come, first served. Get the goods into circulation and then fade into the night so no one could tell the market had ever been there. It worked in principle. Mathieu Vivier knew plenty of flash markets had been hit by the UCF. In Saint-Omer the week before, 20 people had been gunned down at a flash market in a sports centre. The risk was worth it, though. It was the only way to get food, medicines and vital supplies into the survivor networks. Nowhere was secure enough to store the quantities of goods taken from a convoy hijack. You had to get it broken down and into circulation. In the post-day zero world, survival depended on speed, mobility and minimising exposure. The market was busy. People had come from all over the countryside. They sorted through clothing and tinned goods in the trucks and barrows by the light of oil drum fires. Mathieu was watching the doors, an air horn in his coat pocket. They had men posted outside and lookouts on the rooftops and approach roads. At the first sign of a UCF raid or descending toclophane, they would shut up shop and scatter. Mathieu moved through the crowd, greeting people. But a lot of newcomers had turned up, and that made him edgy. Looking for something in particular? He asked a stranger. The usual, the man replied. Food. English, right? Asked Mathieu. The man laughed. <laughs> My accent that bad, eh? Little way from home, aren't you? Mathieu asked him. I was on holiday when it went down, the man said. Guess I'm stuck here. Come to that, I don't think anywhere is home anymore, do you? Matthew shook his head. Actually, said the man, I'm looking for someone. He took a scuffed photo out of his coat. My girlfriend. We got separated. I really want to find her. What is her name? Matthew asked, looking at the photo. Martha, the man said. I'm so worried about her. I wish I could help, said Matthew, but I don't recognise her, and I'd remember a face like that. I'll ask around, though. Matthew watched as the man moved away. Then he stopped to warm his hands at one of the old drum fires. Funny bloke, said a voice beside him quietly. Matthew looked round, but there didn't seem to be anyone there. Except there was. A girl was standing beside him, just at the edge of his peripheral vision. Don't look at me, look at him, she said. Pretty well fed for one of us, don't you think? Matthew could still see the English stranger through the bustling crowd. He'd stopped to show the crumpled photo to someone else. He was a big guy. He didn't look hungry. What are you telling me? Matthew said. I'm telling you that the UCF have all the rations they need. This market has to close, we're in real danger. Matthew turned to look at her. Even facing her, he couldn't quite see her, but he knew that it was the girl from the photograph. What's your name? she asked. Matthew. You have to trust me, Matthew, she said, or people are going to die. Matthew looked back at the English stranger. He had turned and was staring directly at Matthew. A slight grin crossed his mouth and curled the big scar on his cheek. My name's Martha, 
the girl said. You have to trust me. Griffin turned. The guy he'd quizzed was standing beside an oil drum, staring straight at him. The flickering oil drum fire was casting the man's shadow out behind him in the gloom. The shadow wasn't flickering. It wasn't a shadow. He could see her. Right there in the amber dark, he could see her. He began to push through the crowd, shoving people aside. He reached under his coat for his Glock, but the man beside the oil drum had pulled out an air horn and was letting it blast. Pandemonium swept through the marketplace. Other air horns started to blare, taking up the alarm. People shouted, scrambled and surged towards the exits. Engines started up, trucks thundered into life. Exhaust fumes belched. Panic took hold. Move! Griffin yelled, fighting his way through the stampeding crowd. He got a glimpse of her. She was running with the guy with the air horn. Griffin raised his glock and fired two shots at the roof. The cases pinging as they hit the ground. The crowd scattered in terror, spilling away to get as far from him as possible. He started to run again, but a flatbed truck reversed right in front of him, nearly knocking him down. He ran round it, cursing. He'd lost sight of her. Where is she? Bursts of gunfire began to chatter outside. The panic went up a gear. People were screaming. An oil drum went over in a swirl of sparks and cinders and two pickups collided as they tried to drive for the same door. Griffin pulled out his radio. Close in! Secure the zone! She's here! Repeat! She is here! Martha and Matthew ran headlong with the crowd. It sounded as if an army was storming the warehouse. Have you got transport? She yelled. Yes! Come on! He said. When a raid hit a market, you got out. Every man for himself, that was the rule. Get out, vanish, worry about the others later. If you stopped to help someone, you weren't helping yourself. But Martha had probably saved a lot of lives with her warning. She'd preempted the raid. She'd got them all moving before the UCF was in position. So he wasn't going to leave her. Matthew had an old Citroen van parked near the west door of the warehouse. They ran to it and Matthew jumped in and started the engine as Martha climbed in on the passenger side. Then Martha heard a series of dull thumps, like the sound of someone flicking stiff cardboard with their fingers. She realised that bullets were thumping into the van's rear bodywork. She glanced in her door mirror and saw the big UCF agent with the scarred face sprinting up behind them, firing his pistol. Martha yelped and flinched as the side lights shattered and a bullet creased the dashboard. Matthew lurched the van forward, his foot down. Blue smoke boiled from the tyres. They hurtled towards the west door, knocking over stacked cartons of tinned fruit. Their pursuer was fit and powerful, and the length of his stride was keeping him close behind the van as it accelerated. He fired his glock again, the rounds punching into the van's rear doors. He's right behind us, Martha yelled. I know, said Matthew, hold on. The van's rear lights had long since been smashed, so when Matthew hit the brakes, there were no red lights to warn of a sudden stop. Griffin suddenly realised that the van had slammed to a halt. He collided with the rear doors at full tilt and bounced off them onto the ground, dazed. Matthew threw the van forwards again and accelerated out of the west door into the night. Behind them, Griffin picked himself up and reached for his radio. Trucks and cars were fleeing the warehouse in all directions. They drove fast, without lights, risk balancing risk. 
Not everyone would make it. The UCF had swept in and blocked some of the routes south, and heavy gunfire rattled and flashed in the night. Matthew wrenched on the steering wheel to avoid a slower-moving market truck, then left the road completely. They jolted across an old playing field and onto a service road between derelict factory units and a patch of waste ground. Look out! Martha cried. A UCF truck had swung out at them, headlights blazing. There was gunfire. Matthew tried to turn, but a tire blew, and the van went into a skid. It tore through a chain-link fence and then bounced down an embankment onto the waste ground. Any sign? Asked Griffin. Rafferty scrambled up the embankment from the wrecked van. The area bathed in floodlights from UCF vehicles. <sighs> Nothing, said Rafferty, except some blood in the cab. Someone's hurt. Well, they can't have gone far, said Griffin. He turned to Bruno. Lock everything down. We've got two hours before dawn. She's not getting away this time. Hold still, said Martha. Oh, leave it. Matthew replied, "You've got glass in your face," she said. "So hold still." We have got people who can do this," said Sylvie, one of the women watching them. "I'm a doctor," said Martha. They'd reached the survivor camp about five miles west of Circle at first light. It was a ruined factory with no sign of life or habitation, but concealed doors led down into a basement where over fifty people lived. They had a water supply. Provisions, a serviceable latrine, and they'd even built a ducting system to channel cooking smoke out without giving away their location. Some of us had grandparents in the resistance, Matthew said. Stories get handed down, ideas, techniques. I've got some stories of my own, said Martha. Let us start with the obvious, said a man called Eve. Who are you? The UCF are after her," said a woman called Lisselle. "She shouldn't be here." I couldn't leave her," said Matthew, wincing as Martha's tweezers removed another lump of glass. Besides, her warning saved lives. It would have been a slaughter. Dozens are dead. Dozens more arrested," said Eve. The whole zone is locked down. We have to stay underground for weeks. No foraging, no resupply. Food will go short. That's if they don't find us," said Lisselle. Martha could hear the despair in their voices and see the hollow looks on their faces, the fear in their eyes. She thought of Alicia. Listen," she said. "Listen to me. I can't do it alone." Martha told the Circle group over supper, "I'll do everything I can, but I need as many of you as possible to become Martha Jones." "What?" laughed Sylvie. Martha grinned and said, "Do what I'm doing. Make contact with other groups. Share the stories. Tell them what they have to prepare for. Be me, so I'm in as many places as possible, spreading the word. Be Martha Jones and make more Marthas." I respect you, Martha," said Eve. "But are words and ideas going to be enough? To beat the master, we need to fight." Several voices murmured in agreement. "There are all sorts of ways of fighting," said Martha. "I mean, kill the master," said Eve. "The doctor," Martha began. 
With respect, said Antoine, this doctor might already be dead. He isn't, said Martha. I'd know. After supper, she helped Matthew clean the dishes. What about you? she asked. Do you fancy becoming a Martha Jones? I'll tell everyone I meet what you told me, he replied. But I agree with Eve. We should fight. They say the underground is growing in the East, in Germany and Switzerland. I plan to head that way to join them. Maybe I can get the underground active there too. I've heard talk of the underground. There are lots of groups, Matthew told her, all independent, but if we could link them up. The UCF is strong, said Martha, and the Toclophane. What else can we do? asked Matthew. Believe, she suggested. Matthew wrung out the dishcloth and drummed his fingers on the edge of the bowl. Tat tat tat. These stories, he said, of other worlds and alien creatures, are they true? What do you think? she asked. I think the sky opened two months ago and unearthly things rained down and changed the world, he said. I think anything is possible. So you've been to these other worlds and times? she nodded. The doctor took you there. What is he really like? He's extraordinary, she said. He never gives up. He never stops fighting. But he always finds the clever way to fight. And believe me, that's never with bombs and guns. Does he know what the Toclophane are? Matthew asked. She shook her head. No, not yet. She helped him carry the bowl of dishwater over to the grey water recycler and tip it in. I can't stay here, she told him. I need to move on. Security's really tight in this zone, he replied. Maybe another month. I can't wait that long, she said. Matthew shrugged and said, So we'll find a way, and I will come with you. There's no need, Martha began. I can take you to other groups between here and Charleville. They, in turn, can link us to others. You don't have to do that, she said. I'm doing it for me, he said. It's time I went looking for the underground. So how do we get out, she asked. I'll think of a way, he replied. Griffin and his men were supervising house-to-house -house sweeps in the suburbs of Sercourt when Brunel's call came through. Griffin flipped out his phone. Speak. I recommend you look at the overwatch fast, Brunel said. Holding the phone to his ear, Griffin jogged past the rows of sobbing detainees held at gunpoint and headed for his vehicle. Guard dogs stretched on their chains and barked at the frightened captives. Shut them up, Griffin told Jenks. He got into the cab and pulled up Overwatch on the vehicle PC. You seeing it? asked Brunel. Yeah, said Griffin. Positive make, fugitive Martha Jones, labour camp in Tournay, the message window read. Is this confirmed? Griffin asked. It came through a verified UCF device about 20 minutes ago, said Brunel. I've back-checked. Source says Jones was seen at the camp around nine this morning. 
three separate sightings, including one by a camp guard. That was two hours ago, said Griffin. How far is Tornay from here? It's in Belgium, over the border, about an hour's drive if you push it. Stand by, Griffin said. He leaned out of the cab. With me, now, he yelled. His men broke towards him on the double. Griffin started the engine. Bruno, clear all roadblocks and checkpoints between here and Tournay, Griffin said. We're not stopping. Secure the labour camps in its immediate location. Mobilise everything you've got. And Bruno, he continued, nobody moves in. Are we clear? Nobody makes a move for Martha Jones until I am there. Understood, Bruno replied. Griffin snapped the phone shut. His men aboard, he put the vehicle in gear and stood on the accelerator. We got to be somewhere in a hurry, Chief, asked Bremner. Tournay, Griffin said. We've got her. As easy as that, asked Martha, smirking. Eve nodded. Just about, he said, typing on the PC's keyboard. Additional confirmation. Fugitive Martha Jones. Tournay Labour Camp. Request instructions. The screen read. There was a pause. The network pinged. All UCF, Tournay. Hold position and await personal rendezvous. The new message window read. The flash market operators had captured the UCF truck during the supply convoy hijack. All the convoy vehicles had been ditched at the warehouse or dumped in reservoirs and quarries. It would take the UCF a while to realise that they were missing an active ATV. I called in some favours, Matthew said. Consider this ride a thank you from the marketeers. They loaded their backpacks into the ATV. Dressed in combat boots, army pants and a black leather jacket, Martha said a quick goodbye to the circle group. A wind was picking up, rustling the branches of the elms and poplars that shaded the ruined factory. Get indoors, she said. You shouldn't be out here. God bless you, Martha, said Sylvie. Keep Matthew safe laughed Antoine. Remember, believe, Martha said, tapping a finger against her temple. We'll win this if we remember and believe. Matthew had already waved to his friends and climbed into the cab. Martha, he called. She opened the passenger door and looked back at the group one last time. Be Martha Jones, she told them with a grin. She got in, and they drove away down the road. Martha felt an emotional tug as they left the circle group behind, as if she might shed a tear or two. But she hadn't cried so far, and she wasn't about to start. Riding in a UCF vehicle had its advantages. Heading east, through Belsor and Travonville, most checkpoints simply waved them through, and those that did stop them saw nothing amiss with Matthew's counterfeit paperwork. None of them even noticed the second person in the vehicle. The dashboard PC, opened in its rubberized casing, flashed them constant updates from Overwatch, allowing Matthew to detour UCF mobilizations on a couple of occasions. By nightfall, they had made contact with a survivor group in a small village on the Oise. The group helped them conceal the ATV, took them to their shelter and gave them beds and a meal. In return, Martha told her stories. Some were stories she'd never told before. Others were so well rehearsed they told themselves. She answered questions and listened to hopes and fears. 
she told them what she knew and asked for their help. She did what the doctor had asked her to do. The next day, at first light, rain had set in. When they started up the ATV and woke the PC, Overwatch was buzzing with alerts. Their ruse had been discovered. Someone, somewhere, probably the thug with the scarred face, was seriously raging. Blanket sweeps had been ordered, border closures, raids and searches. They drove through the rain towards Rumini. We'll have to ditch this ride, Martha said. We could be carrying a tracker or maybe they can trace our transmissions back to this PC via the Archangel net. I know, said Matthew. I just want to get as far as a Sonania, okay? They dumped the ATV in a river long before a Sonania. The rain was sheeting down and the UCF was closing its noose. Helicopter gunships swept the skies and Martha saw two scudding shoals of toclophane. They trekked through rain-swept woods, avoiding highways, and made it to a place called Villette by mid-afternoon. The village was dead, and what looked suspiciously like a mass grave lurked in the woodland behind the little schoolhouse. They pushed on through the rain, and reached San Marcel by nightfall. A sympathetic farmer gave them a ride to Aisonania in his pickup. He kept to back roads and field tracks, rolling slowly with his headlights off. The main highways were bright with flood lamps and searchlights. The farmer dropped them off a mile from Aisonania and showed them the route. They reached the town at ten o'clock and were taken in by a small group that was sheltering in the town hall cellars. There was time for soup and one well-rehearsed story. Martha gave them the quick version and hoped it would be enough. At two, under a moonless sky, the Aisonania group led them through wet fields to Bonville, where a survivor community, nearly seventy strong, was hidden. Exhausted, Martha did her thing again, cued and encouraged by Matthew. She'd done it so many times, it was starting to sound stale to her, but the congregation seemed to listen earnestly. Any of you know anything about the underground? Matthew asked afterwards as they drank bitter coffee and snacked on dry biscuits. No one seemed to know anything. I need to make contact with another group, Martha told the leader of the Bonville Enclave. Can you help me? The man nodded. We will have to leave early, he said. At 4.30 in the morning, the Bonville group led Martha and Matthew out into the dark. The rain had begun again, and it was chilly and miserable. Weary and cold to her bones, Martha shivered. They followed a river through woodland and passed a series of quarries where cranes rose like gangling praying mantises around a half-finished, half-mile-high statue of the Master. It was as if he was looking down at her, his cheeky grin half-complete. After an hour, the Bonville group made signs that they were about to turn back. Keep going, said the leader. Follow the edge of the lake until you reach the road. That will take you into Bassionaire. Is there a group there? asked Martha. I've sent word to them to expect you, the leader said. There were no goodbyes. The Bonville group simply vanished into the drizzle and the night. They trudged along the mud track, the rain falling even harder. Oh, it can't be much further, Martha groaned. Can't it? Matthew replied. 
Hard, savage lights suddenly banged on. They were blinded. Caught in the floodlights, Martha and Matthew fumbled around. They heard shouting, weapons being racked, and the sound of men moving towards them through the wet undergrowth. Get down! Someone shouted. They got down. Martha saw Matthew reaching for his pack. She knew he was carrying a sawn-off shotgun. Don't! She cried.、Oh, please don't! Armed men stood all around them, pushing them down, searching their pockets. It was over. The UCF had got them. End of disc one. Disc two. The Chinook helicopter pounded in out of the blistering midday heat. It travelled low and fast, dragging its hard black shadow across the dusty crags and hills east of Izmir. The pilot said something over the intercom. Say again," said Martha. "I said not long now, Miss Jones," the pilot crackled. She sat in the cabin, gazing out of the window in the hope of catching one last glimpse of the glittering Aegean. It was sweltering in the Chinook, and smelt of the hastily maintained engine, but it beat walking. It was the fastest she'd travelled in four months, and the first time she'd flown since day zero. The Turkish Air Force chopper, purloined by the Bulgarian cells of the underground, was fitted with a transponder that broadcast code-correct UCF transmissions. Even so, they didn't want to stay in the air for too long. Martha fanned her face and tried to enjoy the experience. It made a change from walking, from lurching trucks and run-down cars, from steamers and container ships, from horseback and dog sled, from mopeds and bicycles. She'd even ridden a freight train between labour camps in the Ukraine. She'd moved through Europe and the ex-Soviet states to the gateway of the East with the help of the underground and their whisper channels, telling her stories every step of the way. Following Day Zero, resistance groups had sprung up in many countries. Some worked alone, while others shared intelligence, supplies, and weapons, and moved fugitives across borders under the nose of the UCF. Each cell was made up of devoted men and women who put their lives on the line for Martha several times. Five members of the Slovenian cell had died getting Martha out of Ljubljana. The headquarters of the Munich cell had been raided two days after she'd passed through, and those who hadn't got out in time were shipped off to UCF punishment camps in Hungary. Rumor had it the Munich raid had been led by a big, scar-faced UCF agent. A cell in Belgrade had been wiped out by the Toklafane the night before Martha had been scheduled to meet them at Kladanya, and she'd spent three days in the Trebovich forest trying to contact the movement. Her first contact with the underground had been in the rain-drenched woods above Bassionnet in France. The Bonville group had set up the contact, sending word through their network of agents. Martha and Matthew thought the UCF had cornered them, but it had been the underground. The Bassionnet cell had interviewed them carefully. 
It took them a long time to accept that Martha wasn't a UCF plant. That entire zone of France had been choked by UCF raids and searches after the Tournay ruse. Once she'd proved her credentials, partly with her triage efforts following a UCF ambush, the Bastionnaire cell had taken her seriously. They had links to the east and had sent messages through the whisper channels from city to city. Word came back that someone called the Brigadier wanted to meet her at a contact point called Cursus Hill in Turkey. Mathieu had stayed with the Bastionnaire underground. And the last Martha heard, he'd been heading for Dijon to help mobilise a cell. Martha could see the huge resource plants and mine heads crusting the Aegean coast of Turkey from the helicopter, as well as long caravans of slave labourers going to work under UCF escorts in the dusty landscape. Another monolithic statue of the master dominated the view over the vanquished Izmir. She'd heard he'd even been carved into Mount Rushmore. She'd confirm that when she got to the USA. It was four months since day zero. Her year was a third gone. The Chinook's engine tone altered. Coming in now, Miss Jones, the pilot radioed. I can't stay on the LZ long, so I'll say goodbye. It has been an honour and I won't forget the things you have told me. Thank you, Martha replied. Get home safe. I'll try, the pilot said. Will they be waiting for me? she asked. If the whisper channels have done their job, stay near the LZ. Contact word is Benton. Benton, right, she said. Good luck, Miss Jones. The helicopter settled on a patch of rough ground, the rotors swirling up a huge vortex of white dust. Martha grabbed her rucksack and slid the door open. The heat hit her, gritty and fierce. She jumped out and ran through the sandblast of the rotor wash, head down. The pilot gave her a thumbs up, and then the noisy bird rose into the air, turning and tilting, nose down, heading for a safe field outside Istanbul. Martha was alone. The sun blazed down, crickets buzzed in the dry scrub, and there was no shade to speak of. Martha pulled out her water bottle and took a swig. She waited. No one came. You get it? asked Griffin. Sweet intercept. Got their chatter word for word, Chief, Bremner the intel expert said. You want to play back? Just the main points, said Griffin. She sat down right where we thought she would. Her bird is in return passage, Bremner said. Contact word is Benton. The Chinook's going to buzz back over us in a few minutes, Chief, said Jenks, cradling a shoulder-mounted GTAM. Want me to spoil its day? No, said Griffin. She might hear the boom. Contact UCF Istanbul on the overwatch and tell them to crump the Chinook when it arrives at their end. Will do, said Jenks, a note of disappointment in his voice. They'd spent three months closing in, and it had become Griffin's personal quest. The ADC was backing Griffin up, but their master was becoming increasingly aggravated by Martha Jones' continued liberty. Saddle up, Griffin said. Let's go and get her. They got into the waiting jeeps parked on the roasting hill road. He's got to love us for this, Griffin said. Martha Jones and the Eastern Underground. We're going to give him the infamous Brigadier as a bonus.
Martha crunched her way up the dry valley. The sky overhead was an impossible cloudless blue, the sunlight so intense it seemed to anchor down or cancel out any possibility of a breeze. She entered a ruined village near the LZ, trash and debris littering the roads and broken down houses, and halted as she heard something cough. No one had fed the blank-eyed dogs for months, and they moved as a pack now, pouring through the wreckage, sniffing for blood. They'd scented her. Martha froze, hearing unclipped claws on stone and the growl of famished gullets. The pack rounded a corner ahead of her, led by an ugly mastiff that even in extremity weighed as much as she did. The dogs began to growl, spittle dripping from their loose black gums. Martha froze, sliding her hand down the front of her top. As the dogs began to charge, she pulled out the whistle and blew three hard blasts. She couldn't hear the sounds, but the dogs could. They scattered, yelping. It wasn't the first time that trick had saved her life. Martha Jones? asked a man in black combat fatigues. He was standing behind her, aiming a pistol at her head. Are you UCF? she asked, gripped with fear. Well, that depends, the man replied. What's the word? Benton, she offered. The man lowered his pistol, smiling. Welcome to Curses Hill, Martha Jones, he said. I'm the brigadier. Griffin got out of his jeep and gazed into the heat. There's no one here, Handley reported, running back to him. Well, this is Curses Hill, right? asked Griffin. That's what Intel said, Chief, said Handley. But there's no one here. There is no Curses Hill, the brigadier said, as their truck bounced along the track. It isn't a location, it's a code name for a meeting point. We decide where Curses Hill is going to be, depending on the operation. I see, she said. You are a high-value target, Miss Jones, the brigadier said. To our certain knowledge, three dedicated kill squads are hunting for you. One in particular was getting close in Istanbul. So we had to be cagey. We changed the location of Curses Hill four times in the last 24 hours. I imagine the UCF are cursing your name just about now. Martha nodded and asked, And you are... The brigadier blinked apologetically. I do beg your pardon, Miss Jones, he said, showing her his credentials. I'm Brigadier Eric Calvin, ex-Royal Marines, ex-unit. Creds can be faked, said Martha. Indeed they can, Miss Jones. I hope the fact we hadn't shot you might have done the trick. My father was a member of unit in the 70s. Told me lots of stories about the doctor. He was a bit of a dandy, I hear. Lethbridge Stewart and all that. I thought the Benton clue would tip you off. I'm sorry, Martha said. I have no idea what you're talking about. Before my time, maybe? Is it? Calvin said, crestfallen. Well, never mind. The Eastern Underground have got you now, he declared. We're the fulcrum here in Turkey. We link the East and the West, Germany and the Soviet States, India, China, Norway, all the cells. I was an anchorer with unit when it all fell apart. I've been building this up ever since. I see, said Martha. I have to ask, said Calvin, how do we do it? How do we do what? Martha replied. How do we kill a Time Lord? he asked. The underground base was literally underground. 
occupying a cave system in the hills near the ruins of an ancient amphitheatre. Camouflage netting disguised clusters of army tents and parked vehicles, but most of the camp was hidden in the cool gloom of the caves. Walkboards had been laid down inside the caves, and side chambers filled with equipment and resources. Lights strung along the rough cave walls ran off generators, while power plants provided electricity for radio sets and a small computer suite. Martha counted over two dozen operatives in dusty military surplus gear, but there were no children. Tea? Calvin asked, offering her a seat. And can you believe? He gestured to a plate of digestive biscuits with an expression that made Martha smile. So you really don't know how it can be done, Miss Jones? Calvin asked. I've never studied Time Lord physiology, said Martha, but they certainly don't function the way we do. And as I understand it, they can regenerate from even mortal wounds. Yes, I've heard they're frightfully hard to dispose of, Calvin said. But you thought I'd know how, Martha asked. He nodded. I thought that's what you were doing, Miss Jones. You're becoming quite a legend, and I assumed that you were searching for something that would do away with the master. I suppose the doctor had told you what the weapon was and、uh, where to look for it. Well, he has, but not in the way you think, said Martha. The doctor wants the master stopped more than anything, but killing's not his way. Calvin raised his hands and said, Then I'm baffled. If you're not a clear and present threat to the master, why is the UCF so anxious to stop you? I've got a year to get this right, Martha insisted, and if I do, I'll end the master's reign. But I'm not an assassin and I'm not hunting for some mythical anti regeneration superweapon. I suppose, she added, it couldn't hurt if he thought I was doing that. Why? asked Calvin. He treats us with violence because he expects us to resist with violence, said Martha. The master has a low opinion of our species, Brigadier. If he thinks I'm looking for a weapon, fine. I won't contradict him, and it might help if the underground kept the rumour alive. Oh, absolutely, Calvin agreed. They talked until nightfall. As the shadows lengthened in the weed choked amphitheatre, they went outside to watch the sunset. Will it work? asked Calvin. It has to work, Martha said. If I didn't believe it would, I'd have given up weeks ago. The Archangel communication system is the centrepiece of the Master's control. It's how he conquered Earth long before the Toclophane came. He made us trust him with his rhythmic code. I always wondered how we came to elect that blasted Saxon fellow, muttered the Brigadier, rapping his knuckles. The doctor plans to use it against him, but that requires vast preparation, said Martha. Don't you worry, Miss Jones, said Calvin. The underground will recruit all the Marthas we can. We'll use people on the ground and the whisper channels. We'll help spread the word and get the world ready for the moment of truth. Tell the stories, Martha said. I'll brief your people about what to circulate, and why don't you share some of your father's tales about the doctor? We'll tell the stories, said the brigadier. But what about you? I keep walking, said Martha. The Shin XL docked at Yokohama Marine Terminal at eight in the morning 
six months after day zero. The climbing sun turned the uprights of the Yokohama Bay Bridge white, and the waters glowed gold. But a haze of industrial smog hung over the city, staining the sky from Tokyo in the north to Chiba in the east and Kamakura in the south. The islands of Japan had been enslaved and put to work. The piers and wharfs of Yokohama's dry docks teemed with activity. Klaxons sounded, ship engines snorted like flatulent whales, and shrill loading alarms rang out. Cranes and derricks swung their giant necks around like primordial beasts in the tobacco-coloured haze, and gantry portainers lumbered into position like catcher crabs. The port was running at a capacity undreamed of in pre-day zero times, and proper safety procedures and docking regulations had long since been abandoned, in favour of schedules and delivery rates. The Shinexcel was one of dozens of ships bringing in specialist components from what had once been the Russian Federation, much of which would pass through the factories around Yokohama and Tokyo. Completed product would return to Russia and China to shipyard number one and shipyard number four, the largest in the world, where fleets of universe-conquering rockets were being constructed to aim at the vulnerable heavens. The Shin XL was also bringing Martha Jones to Japan. The only person who knew Martha was aboard was an electrical engineer called Dmitry Korbov, an underground operative from Nakodka. He'd been crewing the run to Yokohama since the shipment started, and using his position to filter whisper channel communiques in and out of the islands. There's a different level of security here, Korbov said as the Shinexcel chugged into the crowded port. The underground is less well established in Japan than in other parts of the world. Why? She asked. Because of security. Beats me. He said, "There are groups in Hokkaido and Kyushu, but Central Honshu, forget it." They were standing at the ship's port rail, looking out across the bustling pier. Two members of the crew strolled past, greeting Korbov amiably. "Talking to yourself again," one of them laughed, looking right through Martha. "That's right," said Korbov. The crewmen carried on along the deck. "All this time you've been on board," murmured Korbov. It still gets me when they do that. Shinexcel settled into her berth, and gantry cranes clattered forwards to grasp the first of the containers. Debarkation alarms whooped and buzzed. The Shinexcel would be unloaded, and the ship would be sent off again, without a pause for customs, or even to gather her breath. We're not talking about gross manufacture in Japan," said Korbov. We are talking about intensive, skill-specific industry. Word is the Kuru and Shiru plants handle the guidance systems for the master's rocket fleet. Your contact's name is Sugu. The address is a cafeteria near the old bus depot in Kanai. Will Sugu get me into the labor camps? She asked. Well, that is the plan. We'll be leaving in eight hours tops. So if you need to get back to me, do it fast. Kolbov warned. Be safe, Martha Jones. No one saw her slip ashore. The warm air was noxious with smog and had a dry, petrochemical taste. Martha noticed that almost everyone in the busy terminal was wearing a disposable paper filter mask. As soon as she got the chance, Martha helped herself to one from an open carton in a pier office. The master watched her progress with indulgent eyes, his arms folded, 
his great granite bulk rising above the city from its pedestal in Yamashita Park. Sugu never showed, and Martha never found out why. She loitered around the cafeteria and the derelict bus depot for five hours, feeling exposed despite the perception filter. The longer she stayed in one location, the more likely it was that she would be noticed. The cafeteria was a steamy, glass-sided place that had once been a popular restaurant. Truckloads of weary port workers were regularly shipped in from the marine terminal and fed miserable rations of thin gruel and claggy noodles. UCF guards punished rule breakers and herded the workers on and off the trucks like sheep. The depot was a concrete lot. The roof had caved in, and the rusting carcasses of several buses lay rotting under the slumped canopy. Stray cats roamed everywhere, mewing or hissing at her as she wandered around the ruins. The cats could see her. She kept moving and kept praying that Sugu would appear. After four hours and two heart-stopping moments when she thought a security guard had noticed her, she vowed to give Sugu one more hour. The smog was at its worst in the noonday heat. The sky a thick, sludgy ochre colour. And everything was mired in a deep haze. Martha had hoped to see the mountains, but the master had stolen the view. It got hotter, and gloomy thunder muttered in the sky. Five hours were up. She had to make new plans. Terrible damage had been wrought on Yokohama on day zero, but there was no sign of any toclophane. She saw a few distant groups of refugees and found litter camps that had been used by vagrants, and UCF patrols rolled by with monotonous regularity. Her plan had been to enter the huge labour camps serving the Kuro and Shiro plants. From the northern sectors of the city, she could see the vast domes of the plants that seemed too big to have been built in six months, let alone set to use. Anything was possible, though, when you had the whole world at your beck and call. Four subsidiary domes surrounded the main plants, like metal blisters. Ao, Midori, Aka, and Kiro, respectively blue, green, red, and yellow. Martha began to work out how she could get into the nearest one. Martha ducked into a doorway. It was late afternoon, and sirens had started to scream in a street nearby. She heard panicked voices and running footsteps, and then gunshots. Ragged civilians dashed down the street searching for hiding places. A UCF patrol had surprised some sheltering vagrants and was rounding them up for transportation to the labour camps. Those that ran or resisted were gunned down. It reminded Martha of South London in the early days. She tried the door she was carrying against, but it was locked. Just stay in the doorway, she told herself. They can't see you. An old man staggered past, helped by a teenager. Martha winced and looked away as a burst of gunfire cut them down. Two UCF guards ran past, chasing the fugitives, while a third stopped to check the bodies of the old man and the teenager. The Japanese guard rose to his feet, his assault rifle cinched against his chest as he stared into the shadows of the doorway, directly at Martha. He raised his weapon and aimed it at her. Out! He ordered. The perception filter wasn't working. Martha wasn't hidden at all. Martha was brought into the Akar labour camp at dusk, with forty other refugees, many of them weeping. Martha did not cry. 
Black lorries carried them through electric fences, past turrets and guard posts, and inner gates opened and closed as they entered the camp and drew up in a concrete bay. The captives were ordered off the lorries at gunpoint and sent single file through processing. Martha expected to be identified at every step, but she wasn't thumb or retina printed or photographed or even asked her name. No one was. They weren't regarded as human, but as slaves. Fresh blood to keep the engines of industry turning. The guards took her backpack. There hadn't been much in it, binoculars, matches, and her dog whistle. But the pockets had contained a few keepsakes of her walk. A Polaroid of Matthew and Eve at Zircor. A St. Christopher she'd been given by a woman in Ljubljana, who died so that Martha could live. An Islamic pendant that Korbov thought she should have. A lucky rabbit's foot Brigadier Calvin had insisted on pressing into her hand at another cursor's hill, telling her, My father gave it to me and a plastic badge that read, Hooray, I am nine. Ironically, they didn't take the key from around her neck, or Jack's vortex manipulator strapped to her wrist. The manipulator only worked if the doctor activated it, and she was painfully aware that the key had stopped performing its wonders. She was issued with a stale bedroll, a dirty food pail, a colour-coded wristband denoting her work and sleep stations, and a slip of paper printed in eight languages that explained her duties. Acker Labour Camp was a huge, high-rise dormitory under the main dome, with municipal shower blocks at ground level and open-grilled decks of tightly-packed cages containing metal cots above. Thousands of people were packed into the cages, looking up, down and sideways into one another's miserably confined lives, Sunlight tinted a grey twilight shafted in through the dome. Martha's wristband read Acker, Au, 10, 15. Red Camp, Blue Sector, 10th Level, Bunk 15. She spent 20 uncomfortable minutes finding her place and laying out her bedroll. After six months of invisibility, everyone could see her. And as a young, black woman, she really stood out among the Japanese. She'd barely bunked down when hooters sounded and electric gates crashed open. Workshift Gamma! The speakers boomed. She checked her slip and got up and followed the others. They were led through to Shiro, one of the gigantic plant domes. Martha looked in awe at the serried decks of heavy manufacture. Entire work lines stacked one on top of another, with thousands of workers toiling at fabrication on every level. Her place was on deck 19, taking over from a woman who was almost dead with exhaustion. A conveyor belt brought circuit boards past her, and she had to solder two chips into place. She hadn't counted on the speed of the belt, and a guard snarled at her for delaying production. Her hands began to ache from repetition, Fst, fst, next, fst, fst, next. She contemplated fusing the chips into the wrong slots until she saw a man two decks down, summarily executed for crimes of sabotage. Fst, fst, next, fst, fst, next. When her shift ended, Martha was numb with fatigue and her hands were bloody and scarred from slips and solder burns. She had no idea how long they'd been working for, they were given plastic bottles of water, noodle soup was ladled into their food pails 
and they returned to their cots. The bunk to Martha's right was occupied by a middle-aged Japanese woman, weeping over a lost son. The one to her left by a young man who was so tired he was shivering. We are all going to die, he kept mumbling. Martha knew she should be telling one of her stories. She knew she should be doing the doctor's work, but she was too tired. Fatigue rather than sleep carried her away. The days that followed were exactly like the first. Martha's skills improved, and she kept her rate up. But she was too tired to talk in her downtime. Where are you from? The young man to her left kept asking her. Everywhere, she murmured. Let me sleep. There was no sense of day or night, and the smell in the camp was dire. Quite apart from the poor sanitation, people regularly died of exhaustion and malnutrition, and the guards took their time to remove the bodies. Half awake, Martha wondered why her perception filter had failed. Had it just worn out? Every so often, fresh slaves were brought into Aka camp, and three days after Martha was brought in, a new group was going through processing. There's been a mistake. A big Caucasian was telling the guards, "Look at my creds." No mistake, the guards said, pointing their weapons at him. In one week, Martha had become an automaton. She was very good at her job. Two jabs of the solder, move it on. Two jabs of the solder, move it on. Will we ever see the sky again? Asked Tito from his bunk to her left. Yes, she nodded, wanting to sleep. Will we? Asked Tokami in the bunk to her right. Martha had no strength left, but she summoned something from somewhere. Hito, call everyone in from the nearby bunks. I've got a story for them. I can only tell it once. I'm so tired, but it, it is a good story. Hito gathered thirty people around Martha's cell. She sat up, weary to the bone, and began. Listen carefully. I don't know how long I can keep doing this, but it's important. Martha was pleased that her story had hit a nerve. They want another tonight, Hito told her. I don't know, Hito. I'm so tired. Martha groaned. We're all tired, said Takami. Your story's already spreading through Aka, said Hito. All right, Martha said. I'll tell another story tonight, but you have to bring workers in from other sections. The stories need to spread. You understand? Yes, Martha, said Hito. Martha lay back on her cot, hoping to grab another half hour's sleep, when she realised someone was standing in the doorway of her cage. A big man, with a scarred face, looked down at her. The same scar-faced man who had chased her across Europe and the Middle East. Martha gasped and scrambled into the corner of her cage. Martha, what's the matter? Asked Tokami. It's him. Martha hissed. Hello, Martha Jones. We meet at last. Griffin said, folding his arms and leaning against the doorframe. I heard you were here, so I thought I'd introduce myself. The situation being so ironic. Martha stared at him, and passed him into the walkway. Where were the armed UCF to back him up and drag her away? She swallowed. 
the scar-faced man was alone. Did he intend to simply finish her off? Don't you think it's ironic? Griffin asked. Martha didn't reply. I had a hunch you might not want to chat, he said. You pursued me across the face of the planet for six months, Martha said quietly. You tried to kill me. Fair point, the man replied. My name's Griffin, he said, showing her his UCF identity card. What happened to your fancy perception filter? You lose it, or did it break down? Just get it over with, said Martha. Griffin stared at her. You think I've come to kill you? Or drag me off to the master, she said. Sorry, Martha Jones, but I'm a prisoner, just like you, he said, showing his wristband. Martha stared at him. What are you talking about? Griffin sat down on the end of her cot. I'm a prisoner. A raid patrol brought me in a few days ago. This is some kind of trick, said Martha. You want information or something? No, honestly, Griffin replied. I don't believe you, said Martha. You must want something. You'd have shot me or, or extracted me to the Valiant otherwise. You're UCF. You've got the credentials to prove it. Yeah, mused Griffin, looking at his ID. Japanese guards don't seem very impressed by that. It's a puzzle, I can tell you. There's only one explanation I can think of, he continued. The UCF isn't running this place. Someone else is in charge here. It was two shifts before she saw Griffin again. He found her queuing for a ration of noodle soup. Thought any more about what I said? Griffin asked. Martha ignored him. Oh, stop it with the cold shoulder, Jones. We have a history on the outside, but in Acker, we're just another couple of lost souls. And something's going on here. I don't know what you expect from me, Martha replied. Listen for five minutes, he suggested. For the last six months, Griffin said, I just wanted to catch you. There was a lot riding on it, big promotions, our master's favour. Yours, maybe, not mine. Griffin shrugged. Anyway, things have changed. I just want to get out of here alive. And I reckon being trapped in here is messing up your mission too. What? Are you suggesting we team up and escape? She asked. You put it like that, it sounds stupid said Griffin, but I reckon my chances will be a lot better with you on board. You're the famous Martha Jones, and for our master to want you quite so badly, you must be a serious operator. They were sitting in her cage, eating their meagre rations. Go on then, Martha said. Five minutes, but just call him the master. This hour business makes my skin crawl. Griffin nodded, dredging the soup with his spoon. Whatever's going on, the master doesn't know about it. Japan is just another part of the global empire. It's covered by the Overwatch net and administered by the UCF, just like everywhere else. Go on, said Martha. I tracked you through the Russian Federation. Our last brush was at Shipyard One, he said. You gave me the slip, as usual, but I had a number of leads. You go round the world telling people who you are and ask them to remember you, Martha. You leave a trail. I said, go on, she repeated. Griffin smiled. I was sure you were shipping out to Japan, and I wanted to jump ahead. 
you need authorization to move around even if you're UCF. So I contacted UCF Japan and requested permission to fly my team into Honshu. They turned me down. According to them, this is a no-fly zone because the work being done in the plants is highly sensitive. You see any toclophane here? No, she admitted. UCF Japan informed me that even toclophane are banned from their airspace because their energy affects the guidance systems being manufactured. The only way in or out is by sea. That sounds excessive, said Martha. But when I got close to the Kuro and Shiro plants, my perception filter failed, and I was caught. Well, I got in touch with my ADC, Griffin said. She's one of our... The Master's Sector Chiefs. I asked her to pull some strings toward UCF Japan to allow a plane in, but even she ran into a brick wall. UCF Japan told her that Martha Jones was not coming to Japan. They said they had positive data placing Martha Jones on a supertanker heading into Chongjin in North Korea. I was advised to route my team that way. But, asked Martha, but I knew better, Jones. I spent six months failing to catch you, so I knew how you worked. Japan was wrong. I suggested my ADC sorted it out, but I was losing time. You were getting away. So I took a leaf out of your book, Jones. You became a nice person all of a sudden, she asked. Ha <laughs> funny girl. I stowed away on a supply ship to Yokohama, taking my oppo, Bob Rafferty, with me. I left the rest of my team in Vladivostok, went to join me. As far as I know, they're still there. As far as you know asked Martha. When I got here, my phone link to UCF High Command stopped working, even though it's Archangel, he said. I lost contact with my team, the Valiant and my ADC. My phone broke down, Jones, just like your filter. Martha dropped her spoon into her pail. Five minutes were almost up, Griffin, she said. We'd been on the ground six hours when the patrol rounded us up said Griffin. We showed them our credentials, but they weren't interested, so Rafferty tried to impress upon them that we were UCF. They shot him. Execution style. No warning, no caution, just a double tap. That's when I realised that things weren't right in Japan. He frowned. I'm a soldier. I know about killing, and I'm not ashamed to admit it, he said. Sometimes you fight, sometimes you know when to fold your hands behind your head. He looked up at the cages stacked above them. I'm still alive, and so are you, he said. You believe in hope, Jones? Do you have to ask, she said. He smiled. This is what hope feels like, when hope is all you've got. Martha dragged herself through the next shift. She burned the ball of her thumb badly with her solder gun, and a guard hit her twice in the ribs for delaying the belt rate. As she settled back to the monotonous toil, Martha realised that her Acker slave existence wasn't just another trial. It wasn't an experience she could live through and afterwards look back on. Unless she did something about it, the Shiro work plant was going to be her life until she died, and if her life ended, the world ended with it. Her task was only half done. The world was waiting for her. The doctor was counting on her. She refused to cry. If she cried, she'd miss a circuit board, and that would mean another beating or worse. She thought about Griffin, and about hope. 
she thought about a little girl who was looking after her earrings. Martha had set up a pattern for her storytelling. The guards noticed if too many people moved around between shifts, so she scheduled a three-night pattern. Hito and a boy called Ono brought a group of slaves to her on the first night, while those who had already heard her speak filtered out and took their places in the cages. On the second night, Martha rested, and the slaves who had heard the story spread out and repeated them to their own groups. Every third night, Martha left her cage and talked to a new group on a different deck. I'd like to hear one of your stories, Griffin said to her in the food line. Just stay in your cage, she told him. If you want my cooperation, you'll stop doing what I tell you. Griffin nodded, but he was beginning to hear the stories anyway. Jones fired people up. Once they'd heard her speak, they couldn't help passing her stories on, and one by one, he was hearing them all. At shift end, Martha flopped down on her cot, brain dead with fatigue. The Acker guards didn't care how much the work damaged her, and there was no first aid or medic, so her hands were wrapped in strips of dirty cloth torn from her bedding. Hito appeared in her doorway. It was story night, and she was due to perform. Give me ten minutes, she sighed. Tonight's listeners aren't here yet, Martha Jones, Hito said. Rest. He came into her cage and made a quick, respectful bow. He'd reserved a portion of his ration for her again. Hito kept doing that no matter how many times she gratefully made him take it back. I've heard something, Martha Jones, he said. What sort of something? she asked. I heard there is a third plant. Yuki heard and told Basu, and he told Ono who told me. She sat up. A third plant? What does that mean? Hito shrugged. There is Kuro, and there is Shiro, and there is a third plant called Koban. Aka and Kiru slave camps service Shiro, Eyo and Midori camp service Kuro. But there is also Koban. Yuki heard and told Basu, who told, Get to the point, Hito, please, she begged. Every month, said Hito, the guards come here to extract 30 workers to serve at Koban. They pick them at random if no one volunteers. But you can volunteer, she asked. What is this Koban? I cannot say, he replied, but they claim it's a way out of the camps because none of the workers ever come back. None of the workers ever come back, Martha said, standing in the doorway of Griffin's cage, feeling as if she was appeasing the enemy. Griffin thought about that. None of the workers ever come back. What does that say to you, Jones? It suggests they die she replied. But what if they don't come back because they're moved to a facility with better conditions? You know, as a perk for taking on extra responsibility. Sounds like a bad idea to me, Jones, he said. Were you thinking of going for it? She sighed. I don't know. Possible death is preferable to certain death, isn't it? Isn't that how a soldier like you would calculate it? Sounds too rich for my blood, he answered. So what, she said, 
We stay here until they work us into our graves. I think I've found a few weak links in security here, he said. It's early days, Jones, but I'd rather try to break out of a place I know than risk getting into a worse situation. Well, I just thought I'd tell you, she said. You're going to do it, aren't you, Jones? Griffin asked. Well, I haven't made up my mind, she replied. Probably not. You're right, Acker is bad, but the grass may not be greener. Hooters sounded. Sirens wailed. Any takers for work duties in Coban plant, the guards shouted. Volunteers! Better conditions, privileges, complete a two-week tour in Coban and earn your freedom. The slaves stared down out of their cages without moving. All right, announced the chief guard. Pick them by numbers and generate a work crew. Thirty workers. The camp guard started yelling out numbers. I volunteer, Martha called out. Good, down here, the chief guard said. I volunteer too, shouted Hito. As Hito ran up behind her, Martha turned to glare at him. No, you don't, she hissed. Don't do this. I go where you go, Martha Jones, Hito said, grinning. I volunteer, Ono called out. So do I, cried Takami. No, no, Martha growled. So do I, said a voice, and Griffin clumped down the grilled stairs. Anywhere's better than here, he told the guards. He nodded to Martha, but she didn't know whether to feel pleased or angry. Once the guards had filled their quota, they opened the gates of Acker Camp. They filed aboard a UCF-painted school bus, waiting in the concrete bay. Hito seemed almost jubilant, but Griffin avoided Martha and sat at the back alone. Takami took the seat beside Martha. Where do you think they are taking us, Martha? Takami asked. Martha didn't reply. She had a terrible feeling of foreboding. Taking herself over the precipice was one thing. Taking innocence with her was quite another. They drove for an hour. For a fraction of a second in that hour, Martha glimpsed the mountains, peeping through the sickly smog. Coban Plant was a grey concrete block twenty storeys high, surrounded by rings of pain wire and autogun emplacements. Five cage gates opened and closed to let them in. Then they drove down a long ramp into a basement garage, where the guards ordered them out. It smells funny in here, Hito said. Kid's right, Griffin whispered, coming in behind Martha. The air's wrong. Something's off. Prepare for sanitization, the chief guard yelled. All notions of dignity were abandoned. As faced with aimed guns, they stripped and walked through a series of pungent chemical showers. At the far end of the shower block, they were blown dry by air systems and handed overalls by hazmat-suited personnel. This isn't promising, Griffin whispered to Martha, pulling on the overalls. We'll just look somewhere else until I'm dressed, Martha replied. A hatch opened. In here, ordered one of the hazmat guards. A large antechamber awaited them on the other side of the hatch, bathed in cold, silvery light. The guards withdrew and closed the hatch. Welcome to Coban, several voices said in unison. The words sounded clipped, as if the voices weren't used to speaking the language. 
Who are you? Martha called out. We are in control here, said the voices, mingled as one. And you are the famous Martha Jones. The relativistic segue occupied a vast chamber in the heart of the Coban plant, which stank of electromagnetics and ozone. The segue was contained within a framework of polished chrome obelisks rooted on a stone plinth, their proportions revealing that though they had been constructed from terrestrial materials, they had not been designed by humans. The segue was like a bright bolt of lightning moving in very slow motion. It was an artificially induced tear in the fabric of space-time, and the drast were very proud of it. They were also fascinated by Martha Jones. You are the doctor's famous companion, said one. Tell us about the doctor, requested another. Tell us about the master, added a third. Six of them had removed her from the group, taken her to an observation platform overlooking the Segway, and gathered around her inquisitively. They were tall, slender and vaguely humanoid, though their anatomical proportions seemed wrong. They wore suits of complex, tight-fitting armour made of gleaming blue metal, and their faces were covered with extravagantly ornate masks that reminded Martha of squawking birds. A bright tungsten light shone through the eye and mouth slits of the masks, and from gaps between the closely wrought segments of their armour, suggesting that their bodies were bioluminescent, like creatures of the deepest, darkest limits of the ocean. Who are you? Martha asked. We are the Drast, said one. We are Drast Speculation Initiative 14, said another. How long have you been on Earth? asked Martha. One Earth decade, said another. And what is your purpose? she asked. We are Drast Speculation Initiative 14, they repeated. We were sent by the great Drast to conduct a clandestine assessment of this world, one of them said. We were further charged to initiate economic takeover, another added. Your invaders? Martha asked. We are speculators. We despise warfare. We engage with the economic infrastructures of chosen worlds and manipulate them until we have effective cultural and economic control. You mean you take over the running of entire worlds without anyone knowing? Martha asked, eyes wide. It is a long and complex operation, said Adrast. A successful speculation might take generations to complete. Subtle micro-adjustments are made over a period of years to engineer crucial measures of control, said another. Martha shook her head. So when the Master took control of the planet, it was already being invaded? she asked. The arrival of the Master was an unforeseen variable, said one of the Drast. We cannot compete with him. This speculation initiative has been abandoned, said another. 
Disguise fields conceal our presence from the master while we arrange and execute our withdrawal from Earth, said a third. You mean get in your spaceship and fly away? asked Martha. Use of conventional intersystem craft is not an option, one of the drast answered. The master would obliterate our craft before we cleared the atmosphere. Our withdrawal from Earth, added another, must be accomplished using the Segway. The draft, Martha learned, had been well established in Japan's technology sectors when the master had revealed himself. They had used their position to take control of the guidance manufacture operation that the master had set up in Honshu, allowing them access to some of the most advanced technology the master was developing for his fleet, including the potent black hole converters. One such converter had been partially dismantled in the Koban plant and then activated under laboratory conditions. It had opened the relativistic segue, tearing a hole in time and space through which the draft could escape. It wasn't that simple, of course. Martha watched from the platform as armed guards in hazmat suits led Ono into the segue chamber. The terrified boy had a harness buckle to him from which ran a safety line. The guards walked Ono towards the segue plinth, the line playing out behind him. I don't understand, said Martha with mounting concern. The segue must be calibrated until transit is safe, said one of the draft. The segue could lead anywhere, said another, into the heart of a sun. Into empty space, into a toxic world. If the test result is deemed unfavorable, the segue is recalibrated and another test is made. Tested? Martha breathed, by sending someone through it. This is the most effective test. You're using volunteers for that, she cried. You can't! But we can. They said. Martha looked on in horror as Ono nervously approached the incandescent split of the Segway. He glanced around once and stepped into the light. He vanished. The safety line slowly began to drag into the Segway at waist height. How many times have you done this? Martha asked. Ninety eight times, said the draft. And how many times has it been unfavorable? Ninety-eight times, said the draft. So ninety-eight volunteers have been killed, she asked. Few have been retrieved. None has been retrieved intact, they said. The safety line slackened and dropped to the ground. The guards hauled on it, pulling it out of the segway. Oh no, was no longer attached to it. The end of the line was fused and smouldering. Test ninety nine complete, announced one of the draft. Result deemed unfavorable. Begin recalibration of the Segway. They're going to send us through a hole in space one by one until someone comes back alive, asked Griffin. That's the idea, Martha replied. Just when I thought the world couldn't get any crazier, Griffin said. What? Did they want with you, Martha? Asked Tito. They wanted to find out what I knew about the master, 
They wouldn't be the first to assume, because of my connection to the Doctor, that I must know some secret weakness they can exploit. What did you tell them? asked Takami anxiously. Oh, nothing, Martha replied. When I saw what they did to Ono, I wasn't in the mood to answer questions. I expect I'll be summoned again later. We've got to get out of here, said Griffin. We've got to fight our way out, if necessary. Fight? echoed Martha, looking at the group of scared volunteers. I think you're the only fighter here, Griffin. Everyone's a fighter if they have to be, he replied. I say we rush the guards next time they come for one of us, and no, said Martha. So we just sit and wait for them to walk us to our deaths one by one? Griffin asked. No, she said. I'm going to tell them a story. You have every right to be afraid of the master, Martha began. But you are advanced beings, and your technology has already proved capable of fooling him. What is the purpose of this dialogue? asked the drast. I'm saying that you could help the doctor, she said. You could help the human race. If we work together, we could overthrow the master. This outcome is unfavourable, one of them replied. Well, I'm not saying it'll be easy, said Martha. I'm asking you to help the human race in its darkest hour. This outcome is unfavourable, said another. If we stand together, we could make a difference, she said. It's what the doctor would do. Standing on the observation platform, with the Segway slowly flickering below them, the beautiful masked faces of the Drast looked at Martha. We are not unsympathetic, they said. Well, then you'll help me? she asked hopefully. No, said one of the Drast. But you should not be disheartened, said another. What do you mean? asked Martha puzzled. Your species will not suffer much longer, said the first draft. As soon as the Segway is successfully calibrated, we will leave this world, said the second, and we will be obliged to open the Segway more fully. This will cause a catastrophic quantum collapse, said another. It is a necessary consequence of full Segway operation. The earth will disintegrate, another told her. The master will die, and the human race will be put out of its misery. N no, Martha stammered. I, I don't want you to kill us. I want you to help us. We thought you would be content, said the drast. Martha stepped backwards in shock, too stunned to speak. The enormity of the draft situation began to sink in. In order to save the world from the master, she first had to save the world from the draft. Begin the next test, the draft said. Armed guards led in the next volunteer. It was Griffin. He glanced up at Martha, but did not acknowledge her. He was busy fiddling with the buckles on his safety harness. This is loose he told one of the guards. Can you tighten the buckle? I can't reach it. Griffin glanced up at her again. This time, he winked. 
With a sudden chill, Martha realised that Griffin was about to try something. The idiot was going to get himself killed. Stop! she shouted from the platform. That man's not a suitable candidate for the Segway. The draft stared at her. Down below, the guards faltered and looked up at the platform for clarification, their attention no longer focused on Griffin. One of the guards had moved in to adjust Griffin's harness. As he and the other guards looked up, Griffin ripped out a fist and floored him. At the same time, Griffin grabbed the safety line and lashed it around, snagging the other two guards around the knees. With a savage snap of the line, Griffin flipped them both onto their backs. Griffin delivered another vicious punch to make sure the first guard was unconscious, then took the man's machine gun. As the other two guards attempted to rise, he shot them at close range. The whole episode took less than four seconds. Alarms started to sound as the dross looked on in dismay. What is he doing? asked one. Contain the segway chamber, ordered a second. Martha stared down into the chamber as more guards stormed into the vault. Griffin had detached his safety line and was rushing towards the obelisk plinth, but the guards seemed reluctant to shoot at him for fear of hitting the segway. Detain him, said one of the drast. Griffin stood on the plinth. A predatory grin plastered all over his scarred face. He looked up at the observation platform and yelled, You see me? Up there? I'll be honest, I don't know how this thing works. Griffin aimed his captured machine gun at one of the obelisks but I'll bet real money that emptying a clip into it on full auto is going to be bad news. The test candidate must not be allowed to damage the Segway, said one of the draft. Behind their masks, the draft were glowing brightly, as if in a heightened state. Is he right? Martha demanded. What would happen? Concussive, explosive trauma to the Segway assembly could cause Segway generation failure, said one of the draft. There is also a possibility, said another of the draft, that it could trigger a cascade reaction in the black hole converter. This island group would be annihilated in a mass gravitational implosion. Call off your goons and let me and the volunteers out of here or I'll shoot, Griffin yelled. What's it going to be? I think you should listen to him, Martha told the drust. He's ruthless and he absolutely means what he says. This is unfavourable, the drust chorused, glowing more brilliantly. Shut the segue down, said Martha. That will cause a power blackout across the entire industrial sector, said a drust. I don't think you've got much choice, said Martha, unless you want to risk him blowing us all up. A power blackout would collapse our disguised fields, said one of the draft. Revealing us to the master, said another. Mm, that's a shame, said Martha. If that happens, you'll have to find a new place to hide. Alternatively, you can die right now. I'm waiting, Griffin roared. The drafts looked at one another. Initiate, Segway, shut down, they said. A painful prickle of static filled the air. There was a series of bangs as power systems cut off or switched to standby, and the lazy lightning bolt of the Segway shivered and then vanished in a belch of gas and overpressure. Koban plunged into blackness. Kuro, Shiro, 
and the other manufacturing plants went dark. Then, grid by grid, block by block, Yokohama, Tokyo, and the entire Bay Area went out. In the first ten minutes of the blackout, panic boiled through the labor zones, the marine terminals, and the plant domes. After twenty minutes, rioting began. Gunfire rattled across the smog-bound Megapolis sector, and frantic workers overwhelmed UCF riot squads. Martha never found out what became of the draft, but she suspected that they didn't last long after the shutdown. Martha moved through the dark Coban plant. Her perception filter had started to work again, and guards bumbled past her in the gloom. She located the holding room and took off her key. The volunteers were in a state of terrified pandemonium. "It's Martha!" she yelled. "I'm going to get you out of here!" "Martha!" Takami wailed. "It's so dark. Are we going to perish?" "No, we are not," Martha said. "Follow me." Terror strangled the pitch-black tunnels and hallways of Coban Plant, and Griffin heard gunfire in the corridors around him as guards shot at anything and everything, including each other. He hugged the walls. The machine gun in his hands, his eyes adapting to the gloom. Two guards in hazmat suits raced around a corner ahead of him. He aimed the gun, closed his eyes, and let off a spray of rounds. No point letting muzzle flash destroy his twilight vision. He checked the corpses, helped himself to spare clips and a pistol, and found a mobile phone in a bloody pocket. He switched on the phone, and the service finder icon whirled hopelessly on the bright little screen. Then it stopped, and the icon of the Archangel Network appeared. Griffin grinned. He'd had the number on his phone for six months. He knew it by heart. A serious sense of alarm had begun to spread on the operations deck of the Valiant. Yokohama, Tokyo Zone is not responding. One operator reported. Power is down. I've got reports of rioting. Called another. This. Is bad," said the deck officer, reviewing the reports as they came in. The guidance plants have closed down. Someone will have to tell him," suggested an aide. "God help us!" the deck officer exclaimed. "You know what he's like when he hears bad news." "Shoot the messenger?" the aide asked. "He'd shoot us all," replied the deck officer. "Or worse. Why did this have to happen on my watch?" The aide declined to answer. The deck officer turned to the staff manning the operation stations. Get me a complete picture, full spectrum sweep, all the data you can get. Route Toclafane shoals from North Korea and Russia. Wake up UCF Taiwan and find out if they know what the hell's going on. If I've got to report bad news, I want the whole picture. The operations staff set to work. The air busy with demands for information. Disturbed by the patchy, desperate data coming out of Japan, the ADC jumped when her phone rang. She answered it. Griffin, this will have to wait," she said. "We've, what? Where are you? Say again. You're where? Slow down, Griffin. Start at the beginning. When she finished the call, she saw a look on the deck officer's face as he read the reports. Sir, she asked. It's a disaster, ADC. The deck officer said, "The guidance plants were a vital resource, and they've gone dark. It's mayhem down there." Do you want me to take this to him? She asked. The deck officer looked at the ADC as if she'd just saved his life. Would you? He asked.
He stood on the bridge, gazing pensively at the world he had brought to its knees. As tyrants went, and they all went one day, he looked remarkably chipper. He looked around as the door chimed open and the ADC walked in. See, he smiled. My day just got better. Oh, the perks of power, sir. The ADC said, saluting. He hand slid down the stair rails to greet her, a lascivious grin on his face. Keep serving me like that, and I'll promote you to queen. He said. Somewhere must need a queen, or、oh, I'll look into it. What have you got for me? Not all bad news, I hope. Some bad news, I'm afraid, sir. Oh dear, he said, deflating. Not another food riot in Brazil. Oh, I hate it when that happens. No, sir, said the ADC cautiously. There's been an incident in Honshu. Japanese Honshu. Show me. I've got a lot of interest in Honshu. The ADC handed him the report, which he read quickly. All of the guidance plants, he asked. Power has been down for sixty-four minutes, sir.、Uh, he took a deep breath and scratched his forehead. <sighs> I'm going to be obliged to kill someone over this, he said. Yes, sir, the ADC said, handing him another sheet of paper. But there's another factor for your consideration.、Uh, this is the transcript of a phone conversation I took thirty minutes ago. You should see it. He read the sheet. The drust here, those fortune-hunting, glowy-glowy, entrepreneuring nobodies. Did you know anything about this? He asked. His last remark aimed at the wizened old man sitting in a wheelchair by the window. The old man didn't answer. Still, the drust, he said, leaning back and tilting his head. I'll teach them to mess with me, bioluminescent idiots. And I was starting to like Japan. He looked at the ADC. Calm your pretty head, he said. I'm not angry with you. Who could ever be angry with such a gorgeous thing? Summon the Toclophane. I want the Drast to know who's master. Yes, sir. He pursed his lips and chewed his jaw to and fro for a moment. Burn the islands, he decided. Yes, we can build guidance somewhere else. Yes, sir. He looked at the wizened old man in the wheelchair. The old man's eyes were glaring, painful disapproval hooded by extreme time. Oh come on! He cried enthusiastically. Vengeance can be so much fun. Martha Jones watched as Japan died. Swarms of toclophanes screamed in, unleashing laser death, and the cities began to burn. Knowing that the master's attention had turned to the draft, Martha had skipped onto the first container ship out. Heading for San Diego, she couldn't afford to be near the master's focus, and would make the USA in a few weeks. In her hurry to escape, Martha had left Hito, Takami, and the others to cope in the hinterlands behind Coban Plant. She had known the master would be angry, and had hoped he would seize and dismantle the draft plant at Coban. She had underestimated his venom. He wasn't going to be vindictive. He was going to be genocidal. The islands of Japan burned, gigantic plumes of flame gushing up out of Tokyo and Chiba, 
Though the ship was far out at sea, flakes of soot fluttered down onto them. For the first and only time in her year of walking, Martha allowed herself to cry. She cried for a long time. The streets burned. Gun in hand, Griffin stumbled into the open. Two Toclophanes zipped down to meet him. I'm clear. I'm UCF, he shouted. I brought you here. This person is unidentified, chuckled one globe. Let's kill him, giggled the other. I brought you in, Griffin yelled, opening his phone. A ADC, where's the extraction you promised? I'm in a fix here, he said. The hovering Toclophanes snapped out their blades. That's not soon enough. ADC, for God's sake, Griffin shrieked. It felt as if the whole world was made of night. Their small boat was racing the swell against an invisible coast. The sky was starless and dark, and the sea was like black glass. The little outboard motor chugged. The enclosing night was cool and smelled of brine and channel breezes. The year was almost up. She had walked the earth and witnessed things that she would never forget. A small, blue-white halogen light appeared in the darkness, tiny but stark. It flashed once, twice, a little cold star shining on an unseen beach. There, she said. The light began to swing gently from side to side. They came in through the breakers, the outboard throbbing. She felt the boat's belly scrape and rumble across the shingle. She got up and jumped out cold water sucking at her legs. She looked back at the men wrangling the small boat, wishing that she could see their faces. She ran up the beach towards the light, her wet boots crunching over damp sand and pebbles. A young man waited for her on the foreshore, a halogen lamp in his hand. She came up to face him, slightly out of breath. What's your name then? she asked. Tom, he said. Milligan. No need to ask who you are. Famous Martha Jones. How long since you were last in Britain? Three hundred and sixty-five days, Martha replied. It's been a long year. <laughs> Doctor Who, The Story of Martha, by Dan Abnett, was read by Freema Adjaman. It was produced by Heavy Entertainment for BBC Audiobooks. Yeah!